Hey, y'all. I'm Christopher Rivas, and this is Brown Enough, stories between black and white. This is our first episode of 2023. Happy New Year. I don't know about you, but the new year always gets me feeling kind of uh, reflective. So I thought it was a great time to share a conversation I had with an amazing educator, author, and researcher. In like one sentence, what do you want people to know? That you can't nice your way out of racism. That, that you must shift the built landscape to make things fair and just. This is Dr. Kira Hudson-Banks. She is an expert in something called racial identity development theory. I know it's a mouthful, but it's important. I'll let her explain what it is exactly. Racial identity development theory is simply how people come to understand about their race as a part of who they are. So it's the meaning-making process. That meaning-making process. I love that. People like Dr. Banks believe that to rebuild the landscape of race in America, we first have to better understand it and our place in it. Racial realization is a process that looks different for each and every one of us. But nonetheless, it is a process that happens within all of us. And it usually follows four steps. Pre-encounter, encounter, immersion, immersion, and internalization. I know that was a little quick, so let me break it down. The first is the pre-encounter stage. This is where you're at while you're still living the fairy tale, that all we need is love and race-based oppression isn't so much of an issue. And next comes the encounter stage. This is that lightning rod moment where shit starts to get really real. You realize that your race has a perceived place in this society and there are oppressive systems built to maintain that. You can think of the George Floyd moment and the summer of protest that followed it as the encounter stage for a lot of people in this country. Next is immersion slash immersion. That's immersion with an I, then with an E. This is when you do that deep dive into your culture and you find out that a lot of what society told you about your race and your culture was, quite frankly, bullshit. You might be pissed that you even have to do this work to begin with, but the immersion-immersion phase is when you do it with passion. Now, lastly, we have the internalization stage. This is when you have a high level of self-confidence and confidence in your heritage and who you are. And then you can start to have a similar and deep appreciation for other cultures. I'm sure some of these stages sound familiar to you. I know they do to me. And recognizing what these stages of meaning-making are, being able to name them, can help us on our own personal journeys of identity. So let's get reflecting and jump in with Dr. Kira Banks. Y'all, she did her homework on me and on Ruby Rosa, which I hope you have listened to by now, because we are about to talk about it together. Let's jump in. Justin and so good. Thousands of summer deals at your Nordstrom Rack Store. Save up to 60% on new arrivals from Vince, Rag & Bone, Adidas, Joe's, Marc Jacobs, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. But hurry for first dibs. Get your summer favorites up to 60% off at Nordstrom Rack today. Great brands, great prices. That's why you rack. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. And we're back. 
To get things kicked off, I wanted to get a good sense of how Dr. Kira Hudson got here. Mm, well, what brought me to the work was my own lived experience as a black woman. A black woman growing up in predominantly white spaces, a black woman who was the daughter of two parents who were first-generation college students themselves. So I tell the story that my parents eked through that door that opened up a bit post the civil rights movement time of the 60s. And they were the first in their families to go to college, the first in their families to get graduate degrees. And so our experiences as kids, my sister and I growing up, was very different than my than my cousins and my extended family. But my parents were very clear and we were very grounded that just because we had more money or access to resources didn't make us better. We were all a family. And so very young, I, I understood that people had ideas about who I was because I was Black. And there were some people who thought I wasn't Black enough. You know, some people for whom my skin color and the fact that I was Black made me not okay. There were just, I, I noticed all these narratives that were swimming around about race, which pushed me to think about how do I see myself? So this question of racial identity was with me before I even had the language for it. And then when I went to school, I found faculty professors, Beverly Daniel Tatum, who wrote Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria and Other Conversations About Race. And they helped to give me language for what I was experiencing. And I became fascinated with research and the questions around identity. So you had a, you had a feeling, you say, when you were younger of other piece, people possibly noticing your identity as different. Like, is the awakening an understanding without language or is awakening actually when we can give language to our feelings? So I think that they're both awakenings. And in a way, racial identity theorists think about the process of racial identity not as linear, but almost like a spiral staircase. So you might come back around to an awakening, but maybe it's at a different level. Maybe it's deeper, higher, however you want to think about it, right? So I don't think we actually have to have the language to have the awakening. I think we feel things in our body, in our spirit, we know, right? Like I remember early on a young person who I thought was my friend telling me about how I was an okay black person to have over to her house, but other black people were not okay. And so oh. in that moment, I was like, wait, well, hold up. <laughs> she told wrong. you that. She said, you're okay, but other people are not okay. Yeah. Wow. And I'm sure her parents had told her that. Right? Like, Kira is an okay black person, but black people overall, we don't hang out with or we don't have at our house. Who knows what the conversation was, but it was enough for her to convey it to me. And she thought it was a compliment. Hmm. Can we uh, possibly do this together, you and I? Maybe go through my own racial re realization and you can uh, walk me through my, my steps. Sure. So how does one begin? Well, I mean, I would say the first question is, when did you first come to understand yourself as a racialized being? Like, when did you first think of yourself as either a person of color or Dominican or Colombian? Like, when did you first think about that? I think it was really the Ruby Rosa moment, because as a kid, I I had the the real awesome fortune of growing up in in New York. And my building was a true like melting pot. When I realized like I was going to go to college, I had to make money. I had to support myself. I had to think about my future in that way. And I think when that entered my life and then I found this Ruby Rosa thing, I was like, whoa, I'm fighting an uphill battle. 
something about the connection between someone I wanted to be as a child combined with my career that I wanted to enter, you know, being a space of whiteness, like something about that really was an explosion moment for me. So I'm going to push back a bit because I actually think that there's a distinction that needs to be made, right? So I was reading some of what you talked about in terms of like having to bump up against uh, colorism when you brought someone home, right? Like those are moments where we have to make sense of who am I in the context of race. And I actually think if you push, you probably can think of other moments like that, that this moment that you're talking about in college was actually when you first became aware of racism, perhaps, or the barriers that were going to be in place because of your race. And that's related to racial identity development, but distinct. And I want to share this just because I think it's important. People ask me, I, I do work with, with, um, with people around how to talk to kids about race. And they always say, well, you know, when do I teach my kid about racism? I was like, before you do that, you know, teach them about who they are, about their skin color, and, and t- to celebrate that, not to use it to separate and say less than, but use it to notice and name, oh, your hair or your pretty eyes, how, however you want to validate who they are, who you are as a family, and validate other people. And that foundation of, of like noticing difference and acknowledging it and celebrating it and not using it to create hierarchy is the foundation. And then we can talk to kids about, you know what? So we notice that, you know, so-and-so has this, has more melanin in their skin. We used to have rules that treated people differently because of the melanin they had in their skin, right? Like that's not fair. And so I do think it's important to not conflate our awareness of racism and the barriers that are in the built landscape because of our race with our racial identity. Because our racial identities, it's who we are. It's how we make meaning of ourselves. It's beautiful. Yes, part of it is how we've had to make meaning inside a racist system. But I really do think they're distinct. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does make sense. And I think you're right. Because when you mentioned the bring a black girl home moment or the... I always thought I came to that moment again after my own exploration, like needing to go deeper. I was like, oh, let me let me excavate and look back and see how these things were fucked up. But I actually think getting closer to an earlier time would be not liking myself because I didn't look like people on TV. Like I really hated my hair uh, specifically. Like I just didn't think my hair was nice and I tried everything to make it different. Um, which is to make it more white. And so I think I think my first moments were watching television and thinking those people were possibly even, you know, beautiful. They were cool, they were beautiful, and I was not them. Uh, and that's pretty young. That's pretty young. Yeah. And so, the, I mean, those early moments shape how we see ourselves. And that's why I... I feel like it's so important that we be willing to to talk to kids to help help them make sense, help them notice. Right? I can't change the media industry, although I feel like I'm trying to as I work with major <laughs> media studios. And, and um, I feel like that would be wonderful because what I had to do with my children is I would do a lot of noticing. Like I would, and they got they got so tired of me saying it, but I'm like, huh. Where, where are the brown people in this show, right? 
Like, they're absent. Or why is the black boy always the class clown? Or, you know, why are there no brown girls? All the girls are cute that are cutesy are white and have blonde hair. Like, I would name those things and, and like, problematize them and get curious about it to the point where they would tell me as they would go watch a show, Mom, they're no, you know, just so you know, like, there's one mm-hmm. brown boy in this show. Like, they would start to notice. And it doesn't, doesn't solve it, but I really do think, like, I don't know. Do you, did you talk to anyone about that? No, definitely not. Uh, I just, that didn't, no, like I didn't have that space. So I definitely internalized it. Um, or moved on or whatever, you know, figured it out. Like I just didn't have that space. I just know that my sort of self hate towards my features and stuff was, was mine. You're not alone in that. So many people, I do this activity in some of my workshops where I have people think about their first moment where they know, they notice race, either themselves, their race or the race of someone else's. And most, and then I ask, you know, was it good or bad? Like, did it tell you something about your good about yourself or someone else or bad? Um, and did you talk to anyone? And most people don't talk to anyone about those early moments. And like, what, how it not saying it would have fixed everything but like how might it have helped if someone would have interrupted that with like i love your curls like your hair is so awesome it can do something you know different than some of these other the hairdos that we see yeah but also the girls in my culture didn't love their curls you know like they were you know they were burning their curls um to make it straight so it 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 i felt like i had evidence that i i should feel the way i feel um it's 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 why I think that bond moment made me th- made me think like man it, it always related to me as a child like as a child this might have given me more confidence like look this Dominican dude was mad cool you know um, right like don't question yourself you know and like it feels like you want to to scream that to the world of like hey we don't have to spend all this time hating ourselves like this person that we think is so awesome actually was Dominican yeah so. All that to say, I do think that that I, I would encourage you, yeah, to think about like what were some of those early moments? Hair, uh, you mentioned in some in one of your writings about going and getting uh, going on vacation and being really tan and wishing that like it would go away. So skin tone, skin tone, hair. I mean, every everything feature related. I I think I had an early moment of lips, um, big lips. People talking about big lips. Um, uh, nose, grandma telling me to, you know, pinch my nose to keep it thin. Uh, my family making jokes that I was like adopted because I was like the darkest and had the curliest hair. And, um, and, you know, I always knew it was a joke and we would laugh about it, but like, I think deep down inside, I was like, Oh, that that sucks. Um, you know, that I'm the adopted one. Um, so I think, yeah, if I, if I look back, I have a moment for every actual feature on my body as a, as a child. And and those so those are those are many moments, many like not M A N Y but M I N I many moments, and it might really it might still truly be that that bond moment was one that really launched you into deep reflection about your race, right? And I don't want to discount some of those those early moments that were setting the stage. Once you had that aha moment around Bond, what did you, what did it send you down a, a, 
a hole a of exploration. Hole? Yes. <laughs> yeah. I think it sent me down more of a rabbit hole than anything else. I mean, it's the only rabbit hole of my life up until that moment. It's making me, you know, really explore my life, like who I'm with. He dated a lot of white women. I dated a lot of white women. That's interesting. Like, you know. Dr. Banks says this, this rabbit hole is one of the telltale signs of the third stage of racial identity development. We just take in as much information as we can about who we are. We maybe go back and and learn lessons, hear stories. We want to understand the history and and understand those who came before us to to help us make meaning. Um, there was some Beverly Tatum who wrote the book Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together that I mentioned earlier. When she was in college, she tells a story in this book. She went to Wesleyan, which is a prominently white university, right? It's prominently white, predominantly white college. She doesn't remember any of the folks who were white. And I think that's a perfect example of what happens when we're immersed in our own identity. Like, we don't even see other people and not in a mean way. We just are immersing and learning about ourselves and giving that space. But there's also some anger that can come with that when you realize, wait a minute, hold up. We were taught X, Y, and Z. <laughs> that's not the truth. And so there sometimes is some rage, some, I think, justified and justifiable rage that comes with that stage where you're like, wait a minute, these are not the stories that we were told. Because if we're honest, racism tells us lies about who we are. As folks of color, it tells us lies. As white folks, it tells us lies about who we are. Does that anger uh, possibly also manifest in... I often talk about a, a shift. I think a place where I am in my actual life is I'm trying to get out of the, I have felt for a long time like I have to prove it to somebody. Prove what? Prove like that I can make it, that I can be something in the world. And if people were to ask me, prove it to who? It's like, I don't actually know. Like, I just feel like I have to prove it. Um and it is, and it's not always the best feeling, right? It doesn't allow me to celebrate my wins. It, um, it's that hustle mentality. It's that no more, 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 more. Uh, does it also manifest this anger possibly into this, like, really, I'm proving it to society that says I'm not good enough? So, you know, I actually don't think that's a part of racial identity development theory. I think that's, that's just part. my own shit. <laughs> no, 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 no. You are not alone. I have a whole research study on the topic. You are not alone, Christopher. Uh, but what I think that's related to is white supremacy and white supremacy culture and the ways in which we get told as folks of color within the system of racism that we are not enough, that we're not good enough, that we can't cut it that we are less than, that we are deficient. And within that same system, we're told that white is right, it's better, it's the norm, right? And so I think what happens is there are some folks who call it internalized oppression, that we internalize those negative messages of not enoughness, and that would then make us have to prove. The way that myself and some other theorists talk about it is that it's appropriated oppression, so not cultural appropriation like you hear the buzzword, but like when you appropriate something or you pick it up, right? You you picked up that lie that you were not good enough. Mm. And so when we pick that up, that's that's how we see ourselves. So it's related to racism, but I think it's distinct from racial identity. This idea of 
you feeling like you have to prove or that you're an imposter or that you're not enough, I think that comes from the the smog of being in this society that is very racialized and that tells us as people of color that we are less than. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, Dr. Banks and I will talk about that last stage, internalization, and whether you can go through these stages more than once in your lifetime. Don't go away. Justin and so good. Thousands of summer deals at your Nordstrom Rack Store. Save up to 60% on new arrivals from Vince, Rag & Bone, Adidas, Joe's, Marc Jacobs, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. But hurry for first dibs. Get your summer favorites up to 60% off at Nordstrom Rack today. Great brands, great prices. That's why you rack. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. We're back with Dr. Kira Hudson-Banks. And before the break, we were talking about how me discovering Rubirosa was an encounter moment in my life. It led me into a rabbit hole and out the other side. But that is not the only moment like that that I've experienced. So I asked Dr. Banks, can we have more than one encounter? Can we go through this process multiple times in our lives? Her answer, absolutely. Which I got to say, relieved me a little bit because here's the other moment that felt like a big encounter for me. I've graduated college and I go to see ta Coates give this talk at a library in downtown LA and we get to ask questions at the end and I raise my hand and I get picked and uh, I, I say that in all this talk of white and black, white and black, where does that leave me, a, uh, a brown man, a Latin man? And he says, not in it. And uh, that's like all he says and they take the microwave from me and I, I go home that night and I can't sleep and I keep thinking about not in it, not in it, not in it. You know, what does it mean to not be in it? Um, and I think that was, that's another big encounter for me because that was, that like opened a whole other door about, I felt like he was right. Like there is this, there's this clear line in the sand that said white and black and that my voice wasn't a part of this conversation. And so why wasn't it a part of the conversation? And then I needed to, I needed to then find that, my voice. I disagree. I, I want to ask him to say more, but I, we don't need him to say more. <laughs> uh, I really, but I really would be curious what he meant, but I will say that within the dynamics of race as they are in the United States, there absolutely, there absolutely is a place for black and brown voices to be in coalition. Um, there are a number of folks who I know who identify as Latinx and black, right? Like, so it just seems so reductionist and binary to me 
that's not how I see that's not how I see the world and that's not how I see race. So I think the black white binary is there because of the history of chattel slavery and the enslavement of black people in the United States. Yes. And as our country has evolved and shifted and changed, right? That has that's layered. Black people don't have a have a a lockdown on racism. <laughs> that that there is a particular way in which anti-blackness is is real and rooted in the United States and you as a Dominican Colombian man absolutely have a place in the conversation about race. I I believe I've found that space through the work since then. What so what what did you find in terms of your place? Well, to, it actually speaks to the uh to the New York Times right the 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 broke up with my work girlfriend. But after that I I would I got a lot of a lot of everything. I got a lot of press, I got a lot of uh, I got a lot of, you know, I uh, did some interviews here and there and and someone said to me how does it feel to be the voice on brownness right now? And then the person followed up and said, "What what is it what does it take to 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 get to this place to speak your truth?" And I and I just said, "You have to know that you have you have something worth saying." And I think something about this work, your work is about coming to understand that your experience and how you internalize it and or externalize it uh is worthy. Um so where do I stand today? I think I just stand knowing that I've already had one of these phases, you know, like I did a lot of work around it, a lot of writing, a lot of internalized stuff, a lot of therapy. Um all of the above and I'm and I still feel like oh there's now there's a new there's a new place for me to go. And learn from those who came before you as a way to potentially cast what's possible for the future. Right? And if we're all involved in that process, this is this is the the exciting part to me, right? Like if we're all engaged in that reflective process, what kind of world could we build? Right? If we're all understanding ourselves, the lessons of those who came before us and how that's shaped who they are, who we are. I think that's where we can build a future that is more just, that is more inclusive, that respects people for who they are, rather than tries to create some litmus tests for what makes people black enough, brown enough, woke enough, enough. To me, that's what I think it means to evolve. And maybe that's actually just my own internalization commitment, is my evolution in my own race an understanding of my self-identity, my racial identity, is I basically wrote a whole book and created a whole show about finding brownness, what that means to me. And now I can maybe let go and see what it means to the world and see what it means to be in the world and to live in the world. Well, and that you've made meaning of it and so you don't have to hold on to it as tightly. 
Yeah, definitely not. Or put it on everything. You know, I, th- I, I talk about like being cursed. Like, I don't know what, you should change one of these to the cursed phase because one of them is, 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 is super shitty, right? Like when you have these awakenings, one of them is like, damn, I can't go on a date. I can't order coffee. I can't watch these people with their dogs and their strollers. Like everything to me felt colored and covered in, in race. Like I saw it in everything. And that phase was, was kind of exhausting, but also necessary. Yeah, I wonder if that would be a sub-phase of the encounter um, or something in immersion-immersion and that it just feels like you can't get away from it. You couldn't, yeah, I couldn't escape it. It was just like, it was in every email, it was in every Zoom. It was like, it was just constantly like, the world is a wash and you're like, I see it, I see it. I see the problems, I see this, I see this. But here's the thing, you were also going through this process in what year? Uh, I was going through this, um, I mean, all the way from 2011 to, 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 to now. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, the reason I say that is I think this is an interesting time to come to understand ourselves as racialized beings because so much is happening, right? Trayvon Martin, Mike Brown, we have a whole, you know, that like hashtag Ferguson movement, that domino effect, so many so many names that we could say and call out. Um, there are ways in which TV shows, cartoons, movies, right, are tackling the issues of race, trying to figure out what it means and often fumble through naming race and often conflating just naming race and racism and showing racialized violence. And there's there's a lot of activity happening around race and has been. I I really do think like we're in a we're in a new movement time and movement never really stops, but a very active phase. So yes, I do think you're right. There's a time in, in our racial identity development when we become aware of it and we see it everywhere. It's kind of like that with other interests. Once we get in into something, oh, yeah. we see it everywhere. talked about earlier some of the anger that can come up. Uh, I, I have felt this. I have also felt at time a bit of sadness. Are you, are you inviting people to do this with a licensed professional? Uh, their therapist, do they need a friend to talk to? Like what, what is the role of depression in this work as you start to come to these awakenings? So I think that I always, I think therapy is a good thing for everyone. Agreed. Shout out, Jeremy. Yeah, as a clinical psychologist, I'm totally biased because that's what I do. But um, when we look at the research around, like racial identity development in and of itself is a meaning-making process that happens regardless of whether we're aware of it or we are conscious about it or explicitly talking about it. But when you talk about depression, like as a disorder or depressive symptoms, you know, that's, that can happen across the board for lots of reasons. And one of the things in my research that I've learned is that just because someone experiences discrimination doesn't mean that they will experience depression. And one of the buffers that can keep them from experiencing depressive symptoms and anxiety symptoms is having an understanding of how racism operates in the world in a systemic sort of way. So I did research with college-age folks, and there have been people who've done it with kids who are a little bit younger, that when they understand that racism is the system and structure, that it's not just, oh, that person was mean to me, but like there's a pattern of this happening in our country, 
they don't internalize the racism to the same extent. And they're able to not feel like, oh, well, that's about me because I'm a bad person. And those feelings of depression and anxiety are less so when they understand, in a sense, they understand the game. Is America in a in a stage or a phase? So I think about systems in different ways than individuals. So like I think about the stage that systems are in, it's it's a different model, right? Than the racial identity model. Um, I th- if we had to use the racial identity development model, I'd say the George Floyd moment was a encounter moment for sure. And we are deciding whether or not we want to really do immersion immersion or we just want to go back to being clueless. Um, I see that push and pull, that tension happening. For the systems model that I often point to, Deloitte has a model of a maturity model for diversity inclusion. And an organization that's at a one is just doing this work because they have to, like compliance. They don't want to get sued. And an organization that's doing it at a two is like, oh, we might have some problems. Maybe we'll just like do a program or an initiative. And an organization that's at a three has realized that everyone who's doing this work has to be a part of it. It has to be leader led, whether they have, you know, race in their title or not, that we all have a role in it. We have have a role of not just seeing that there's a problem, but figuring out how we remove the barriers that we see. So we identify the barriers and we also remove them. I think as a country, we have gotten more comfortable in the past decade seeing the barriers that are there and acknowledging that racism is real and that there are inequities because of that. What we haven't moved past is just seeing the barriers. So in so many places, we're comfortable just naming that it's happening. We need to get better at identifying and removing the barriers. So I, I see our country as, as still hanging out at a two. We're trying to, to do this program, do this initiative, and we're not realizing that the work we need to do is transformative work, which requires that we not just put a Band-Aid on it, but we really think about, all right, what got us here? Why is our built landscape so inequitable? Let's see the barrier and remove it, not just let one person over the hurdle, help one person over the, the rough patch. Like, How do we change it so that there isn't a rough patch, so that that inequity doesn't happen again? Come on, y'all. I know we can do better than a two. And maybe, just maybe, if we're all at least a little more aware of this automatic and internal process Dr. Banks and I talked about today, we could move society a little closer to removing barriers for good. I mean, after all, we get many, many chances. This is a process that, like Dr. Banks said, can be repeated multiple times throughout our lives. I see this phase in my life currently as my internalization phase, but who knows? Tomorrow, right here, right now, I can have a fresh encounter moment right when I leave this studio. And that will begin a whole new journey of discovering more about myself and my heritage. Okay, that's all I have for you today on this episode of Brown Enough. I wish all of you peace and serenity as you go through this journey. And whatever battle it is that you're in the middle of, please give yourself grace. Peace, everybody. Next time on Brown Enough, we're talking to the one and only, the legendary drag queen, Britta Filter.
Round Enough is a production of Stitcher. It's created and hosted by me, Christopher Rivas, and I'm also an executive producer. Our team includes producers Manolo Morales, senior producer Abigail Keel, technical director Casey Holford, production assistant Gabrielle Gladney, and executive producer Camille Stanley. This episode was produced by Baudelaire, original music by Casey Holford. Workhouse Media is a contributing producer to this podcast. Carlos E. Hernandez of Ikigai Management is also an executive producer of Brown Enough. And don't forget to subscribe or follow Brown Enough so you never miss an episode. And go ahead, write us that review. You know you want to. Peace. Witness Docs from Stitcher. Justin and so good. Thousands of summer deals at your Nordstrom Rack Store. Save up to 60% on new arrivals from Vince, Rag & Bone, Adidas, Joe's, Marc Jacobs, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. But hurry for first dibs. Get your summer favorites up to 60% off at Nordstrom Rack today. Great brands, great prices. That's why you rack. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.